Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise. I'm actually not here with Lou. Lou happens to be in Ohio. He is meeting with or has met with FastenerNewsDesk.com. Those folks are very creative. Uh, lots of exciting things are happening in the Fastener world. So, again, that's FastenerNewsDesk.com if you'd like to check out that website. So, Lou, how are you today, and how's Ohio? It's uh, wet, humid, a lot of thunderstorms, a lot of lightning, and uh, some some very interesting uh, uh, people. Thanks for asking. Uh, to start off with, uh, our postscript for our last week's show uh, was uh, Antoine Van Artemel, who has written a book, and I don't have the exact name in front of me. You might be able to help me out here, Tim. I know it's about the Rust Belt cities and the resurrection of them in uh, the Midwest. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look for it because I know that the, he has quite a, uh, a lot of interesting things to say on our show, but i got to pull out a, from the bookshelf his book here. Give me a second. Go ahead. Yeah, he, uh, he, it was a very interesting show. He's talking about the Rust Belt resurrection. Uh, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe, and how the Rust Belt cities uh, are resurrecting themselves and becoming centers of new innovation and technology. And this is certainly something that uh, our listeners, particularly those who are uh, perhaps not employed or looking to make career changes because there's not only uh, new industry coming in, but there are training programs that are being developed uh, through um, community colleges and so on. And some of the uh, corporations have their own internal training programs. And the, uh, as a matter of fact, part of my trip here, uh, I met with uh, uh, some people from uh, FastenerHelpDesk.com. Uh, and they are uh, also very much part of uh, the resurrection of the Rust Belt, and particularly uh, in Ohio. And matter of fact, um, ManufacturingDay.com has uh, just announced that the Manufacturing Day that's coming up in October is uh, they, they're trying to get a lot of students from all over the country to participate in these events that are happening all over the 50 states, and Ohio already has, for this October, 4,000 students who are going to be visiting manufacturing uh, plants all over the state, and it is far and away a record, and they're really proud, and they're just jumping out of their skins about what a success the um, Ohio event is going to be this year. Uh, so tune in to... Uh, our last week's show with Antoine Van Artemel, uh, the, Rust, the Rust Belt uh, Resurrection, and uh, you'll find it extremely interesting. That book, by the way, Lou, was uh, co-authored with Fred Bacher, and the name of it is The Smartest Places on Earth, 
The subtitle is Why Rust Belts Are the Emerging Hotspots of Global Innovation. You can check it out on uh, Amazon.com. Great book. No wonder why I didn't remember the title. (laughs) (laughs) Next, uh, news item. Uh, You all may remember that a year or plus ago, about a year and a half ago, we had a real disaster in uh, Los Angeles with the L.A. port strike, which they've now – they've had a contract, and uh, the longshoremen union is now asking for an extension so that – to the contract so that we won't have to relive the – the financial dilemma that was caused by the uh, unions and uh, dock owners and so on. Um, when this happened uh, last, it was uh, it was uh, $3 billion a day loss in uh, products coming in and going out of the United States to our largest port in our country. So at least they're taking a step-up approach to avoid a similar situation, particularly the way the economy is right now. We certainly can't afford that. Uh, Tim, I I heard you had a couple of uh, news items as well. Yeah, a couple of interesting things are happening. I see that Toyota is going to invest $22 in the University of Michigan robotics research over the next four years from their collaboration with the university on enhanced driving safety and partner robotics, indoor mobility, autonomous driving, and student learning and diversity. That's a pretty wild investment. I think you're going to see that more and more across the country. And the uh, big cell phone carriers, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, are all scrambling to try to find new devices to connect to because phones are beginning to reach their upper limit of uh, saturation in the marketplace. And the big area right now is connected cars. So more and more Wi-Fi is being offered to users in their cars, and that's the big growth area. Those are the two things I wanted to mention, Lou, before we go into our segment with uh, Chad Mutre, who is the chief economist for NAM. So let's, uh, let's hear from Chad because he's got a lot of interesting things to share with us. Go for it. We're here with Chad Mutre, who is the Chief Economist for the National Association of Manufacturers. He serves as NAM's economic forecaster and spokesperson on economic issues. We always appreciate his comments because they're both insightful and well-researched. So, Chad, welcome back to the show. It's always nice to be on the show, and thanks for inviting me. We are glad to have you here. And I was just looking at the Monday economic report that you put out, which is such an excellent piece. And in particular, you've got a chart. And correct me if I'm wrong, that this may be the only place we see it that shows the growth in employment, which in this past month was 255,000 jobs. And sometimes that's good news for manufacturing, and sometimes it's not. Is that right? Well, I think you know the, you're talking about non-farm payrolls, and we've actually had two straight months of really strong gains for for the overall economy in terms of, of non-payroll non-farm payroll growth. Uh, 292,000 in June and 255,000 in July, uh, and you know the important thing there is that you know, over the prior five months we saw really lackluster, kind of really soft employment growth, and so it's one of the many measures that we look at to say it looks like maybe we've turned a corner in terms of overall employment, uh, 
other numbers, like, well, I'm sure, which I'm sure we'll get to, like consumer spending and others also have kind of ticked a little bit higher. And so that obviously is a, is a nice bright spot to look at. Um, and kind of you know, similar to that, manufacturing employment also has increased for two straight months, uh, 15,000 in June and 9,000 in July. And so, um, you know, I, I'm often asked when I travel around the country if we've, if we've hit bottom and have started to move in the right direction, and, and at least in, in some indicators, including this one, it looks like perhaps we have. Things have stabilized a little bit. Well, that's good. I note that uh, in this chart, simply because you get a job increase in non-farm payroll, you don't always get a similar increase in manufacturing. That's right, and, and you know, the, the, the good news is that, that we've added two jobs for two straight months. The bad news uh, is that so far year-to-date through the first seven months of 2016, we've actually lost 15,000 workers on net. And so uh, you know, I think that the story that's out there that is, is still pretty true is that we've seen a little bit better data in terms of sentiment surveys, but uh, you know, the reality is that manufacturers are still pretty cautious. There's still a lot of headwinds facing the sector globally, uh, and as a result, we, we're still seeing relatively soft employment and capital spending uh, numbers. Uh, Good numbers in June and July. Not, you know, I don't want to take anything away from those, but I think the, the still larger picture that's out there is that there still are some ongoing uh, kind of lingering weaknesses really to talk about, and hopefully those start to, to turn around. Chad, what are some of the headwinds that manufacturers are facing? Well, I think the first one uh, to note is that the dollar has appreciated, you know, almost 20% over the last two years. And so, you know, again, when I'm talking to a lot of our manufacturing members, uh, those dollar headwinds are significant. Uh, certainly, if you're an exporter, uh, you know that's a pretty significant cost differential for you when you're trying to to, to increase your sales abroad. Uh, and and uh, you know that number is is going to stay strong, you know, throughout this year and moving into next year. And so, uh, it's not surprising that manufactured goods exports were down six percent last year. So far, year to date this year, they're also down roughly six percent. And so. Uh, that, that challenge is a pretty big one, and it's a, one of the things that's really holding back the overall outlook for a lot of manufacturers. Uh, so, so one of them is dollar and global headwinds. The other, the other one I think to note is that you know even though we've seen better commodity prices since we since January, they still are relatively low by historic standards, and so you're still still seeing some pullbacks in the energy sector, in the metals sector, so both steel and aluminum. And if you're selling into the agricultural space, some of the manufacturers that are are doing that have reported that they're that they're you know, certainly seeing weaker sales this year than they would like. And so those are the big headwinds, primarily global, uh, as well as those commodity ch uh, headwinds and challenges. Chad, in terms of the overall GDP, which looks to now maybe come in at two percent or less for 2016. Mm -hmm. Is the holdback really that the oil and gas sector has gone so terribly soft with uh, low oil prices? I think that that's a lot of it. So um, you know the GDP numbers. In, in the second quarter, GDP uh, was only 1.2%. That's well below what a lot of economists, including me, were, were expecting. And that means that in the first half of the year, we only grew 1%. Uh, and the, you know, the big drag uh, really over the last few quarters has been Weaker spending on the consumer side and weaker business spending, and a lot of that, as you note, is, is the energy sector and the pullbacks that you're seeing there. In the second quarter, consumers actually bounced back, and so you're seeing some signs that uh, the consumers who were really holding on and, and kind of holding back on their spending a little bit in the fourth quarter and first quarter started spending again once we got to the late spring. 
but businesses uh, continued uh, declining their spending in, in, the, in the second quarter. And again, part of that is energy, a large part of that is energy. But I think the other part of it is, and as I noted earlier, I think manufacturers are still very cautious, and I think that's what's holding back uh, faster growth on, on, the, on the capital spending side, but also in terms of hiring. I was going to ask you about capital spending because it seems to have been quite soft for the last year or more. Do you see any pickup in that in the near future? Well, I think, you know, what really turns around the capital spending numbers, at least in my view, is just a sense that we're starting to get traction in the economy. And I think uh, and, until you, you start getting some stronger numbers and some stronger indicators, uh, I think the businesses are going to hold back a little bit. Now, clearly, uh, there's, you know, during downtimes is obviously a good time to make investments. And in, in obviously, all manufacturers are thinking about the future. But, but it, it's pretty clear in looking at the data that, that, that at least for right now, they're holding back a little bit. And I, and I think the real key there is uh, when are we going to start seeing traction in the economy? When does confidence shift around a little bit? Certainly the political environment is not helping. I think that's uh, adding enough, another level of uncertainty to the overall marketplace, certainly in, in the post-Brexit world. Uh, global mm -hmm. global challenges are, are out there as well. And so I think all of those things are holding back growth. Um, as, we, as, as you noted, also growth has been slower than, than we would like as well. You know, we're only going to grow roughly 1.8% this year, at least according to my current forecast, um, and that's, you know, well below even the 2.4 we had last year. So that's certainly enough to at least for to cause people some pause, I think, as, as they're thinking about their spending plans. You know, one of the subjects that we've talked about in the past, and Lou and I are constantly looking at uh, on manufacturing talk radio, is the skills gap. And that seems to be more of a serious issue than maybe the general public is aware of. Um, how long does that linger, and are we closing the gap at all, or are more gray hairs retiring out and it's getting worse, not better? Well, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, just the reality, um, you call them gray hairs. I'll just refer to them as, as, as uh, baby boomers. <laughs> as, as more baby boomers uh, retire, and you're going to, you know, some, some baby boomers have held back their retirement given uh, where the economy is. But as they start to continue to retire over the next couple of years, that's going to really exacerbate that skills gap issue. Uh, you know, there's not a next generation of welder, mechanic, engineer, a lot, a lot of other occupations, especially in the trades, uh, waiting in the wings to take those jobs. And so, uh, we, as you know, we've been pretty aggressive in trying to be uh, as proactive, getting our manufacturers to be proactive about finding ways to address those those challenges, and also to work with their educational institutions that are in their area to hopefully make sure those skills are being taught um, at the high school level and at and, and the college level. Uh, the other thing that we're doing pretty aggressively is to try to think about what we can do to change perceptions about manufacturing and trying to convince everyone that uh, manufacturing is perhaps not what they think it is. It's a high-paying, high-skilled job that um, certainly I think uh, you know, not everyone is bound to go on and get a PhD in economics like me. I think so, some, there certainly are uh, a lot of really good jobs out there, nice careers in manufacturing that um, certainly I think we should try to steer our steer our, our young students to. We are certainly a big proponent of that, and we are constantly looking for ways to promote that on Manufacturing Talk Radio because you're exactly right that there's a great deal of the populace that should take another look at manufacturing. It's more high-tech today than it ever was, and it's just going to continue to be more so. Well, I so think the other – 
the other big issue, obviously, given that this is an election year, is that there's this notion out there that uh, you know we don't make anything in America anymore. And I think that in addition to the changing perceptions about manufacturing as a career, we just need to remind people that we do make a lot in the United States and that um, it's actually a growing sector. And I think that also helps to change views about wanting to come into manufacturing. Well, it's an interesting point, Chad, because we see some jobs coming back to the U.S. where the manufacturer wants their productivity or their production to be closer to the consumer, um, and I think that's a trend that's going to continue, that some maybe some low-tech stuff will reside offshore, but all of the high-tech stuff is likely to be here. Is that about how you read it? Well, we want to make as much as we can in the United States, and that's that's why we continue to push policies uh, that make you know manufacturing strong. Um, and so, uh, I know you've seen a lot of those those things on our competing to win document on on the NAM website. But uh, whatever we can do to make U the U.S. more competitive globally and also to to make the business environment friendly, I think is a good thing for us. You know, one of the pieces of the puzzle is labor productivity, and labor productivity seems to have been increasing in the U.S. I know there was some perception some years back that we weren't the most productive nation. I think we are again, are we not? So certainly uh, manufacturers have become a lot more lean uh, as productivity has really uh, jumped over the last couple decades, and I think that that's helped to keep manufacturing much more competitive. Um, uh, and a large part of why you're seeing the turnaround in manufacturing. Uh, with that said, I think what you've seen over the last few years is that uh, manufacturing labor productivity, along with really just overall productivity, has declined. Uh, we're seeing really sluggish rate growth rates for manufacturing productivity uh, over the last few years, just 0.6% uh, per year on average for, for manufacturing. Uh, and we want to turn that around, obviously. I think you know, my personal view is a large part of that is just the sluggish uh, output growth we've seen over that time frame. Uh, but I think from a manufacturing perspective, we want to make sure that productivity continues to rise. Uh, and that's really what leads to more economic growth and obviously higher wages. And that's, that's something we all want. I know in the latest ISM report they were showing uh, prices over the last couple of months have been ticking upward, and manufacturers have been under enormous pressure to keep prices low, to cut prices. They can't do that forever. Uh, I was actually relieved to see some uh, prices going up. Uh, how are producer prices from the perspective of NAM? Well, you're starting to see, as you know, you're starting to see some pricing pressures pick up a little bit. Now, to be fair, we've seen overall inflationary pressures be pretty minimal or at least modest over the last couple of years, primarily held back by energy, as, as noted uh, earlier. But also over the last year, you've also seen food prices, uh, which have, have actually been on the downward trend. And so those really have combined to hold down overall pricing pressures, yet not surprisingly, you're starting to see pricing pressures pick up a little bit in the last couple of months. I would expect to see core inflation uh, be at or over 2% by the end of the year, certainly moving into 2017. And so it's not enough to make the Fed overly worried about inflation, but it's certainly enough that, um, uh, again, after a couple of years really where inflation has not really been an issue, you're going to start to see those prices pick up a little bit. In looking at uh, business overall, I know that across America, if we count just uh, the number of businesses, some 95 or greater percentage of all businesses, small business. How are small businesses feeling about the economy? 
Well, you often see small businesses um, that are, you know, in general, you've seen a, bit, a little bit better data for, for all firm size classes, both small, medium, and large. Uh, traditionally, you see the smallest manufacturers uh, not doing quite as well. Certainly, they had their, you know, they're, they're spread pretty thin. Uh, we haven't seen them bounce back after the recession in the ways that you might have expected in past, in past recessions. Uh, with that said, actually, in some of the more in some of the more recent NAM Manufacturers Outlook surveys, you actually have seen better data coming out of the medium and um, and larger. Excuse me, I said that backwards. You've actually seen a little bit better data coming out of the small and medium-sized manufacturers than you have from the larger ones. And my mm -hmm. my personal take on that is that that's because of exports and uh, the under underwriting trend that I see in a lot of the data is that those companies who are much more engaged internationally, who are much more optimistic about their exports, uh, tend to be more optimistic in their overall outlook. Um, and that tends to be more the medium and larger size members. Um, smaller members have done a great job of increasing their exports, but they're just a little bit less export intensive than their larger counterparts. Before we conclude this segment, Chad, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, do an infomercial for uh, NAM. Uh, I know that the sponsor of our show, Paul Metals and Forge Group, is a member of the National Association of Manufacturing. I put on a ton of great information. But I wonder if you would share with our listeners maybe what the top four or five reports that you put out that you, Chad Lutre, puts out. Uh, I know you put on a Monday morning report every Monday mm -hmm. morning, which is excellent. What else can members enjoy from uh, NAM? Well, I think certainly you're going to get, uh, if you're a member of the NAM, you're going to get uh, the economic reports like the Monday economic report that you mentioned, the global economic report that comes out once a month, including uh, the one that's coming out on, on the 11th of August. Uh, and, and you also get a survey. We're doing a survey on a quarterly basis. And so we, you know, we, as much as I can, I try to, to bring that, that data to our members. Uh, you know, the reality is I am the implicit economist for a lot of our members because they don't have their own economist. Uh, but I think you know the real reason that, that that members join the NAM is because I think we're respected here in Washington on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you you want to join the NAM because we're we're trying to to really get things done in terms of some of our top priorities. I mentioned earlier the competing to win document that really lays out 11 policy priorities for that we that we feel are you know what pro manufacturing looks like and and. So people are joining us to, to help advance tax reform or infrastructure or, or regulatory reform or energy or, or innovation workforce, you know, whatever issue really is important to them. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, the, the, other, the other big issues that, that are out there, we mentioned skills gap earlier. You know, part of the NAM is the Manufacturing Institute, and that's really been a large driver for them over the last, over the last few years, certainly continuing to raise that, the profile for that. Uh, and then I guess lastly, I think, uh, hopefully the NAM continues to increase the perceptions about manufacturing, and uh, um, people think of us obviously in, in ways that uh, perhaps they might not have uh, five, ten years ago. So those are the those are the four things I would say. Okay, and uh, and very quickly, Chad, how does a member uh, get involved in some of the initiatives that that NAM is working on in Washington? Well, I think the first thing to do is if you're if you're a member of the NAM, uh, hopefully you have a contact, a point of contact that you can reach out to uh, someone in our membership. Uh, they certainly, I think, are your first line of, of uh, liaison with with the NAM and what we're trying to push. 
the other thing, just, and I don't want to have everyone calling me, but I think the, you know, the, the, big, the big thing is we are, we are a very open organization. So if someone calls, mm -hmm. calls me or emails me, we're usually pretty responsive. Um, and, and if I can't answer someone's question, usually I can direct them to the person that does. And so um, so that, that's the two things I would say is to just simply reach out to someone at the NAM. We're usually pretty responsive. Uh, but your key point of contact is that membership person that, that, uh, that you work with regularly. And we would encourage all of our listeners to become members of the National Association of Manufacturers. They do terrific work. They are very much on top of the issues. They've had some major wins these years that help manufacturing. So uh, it's been a good 2016 for them. Chad Mutre is their chief economist. And, Chad, we appreciate you joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio again. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are here with Fred Zicard, who's Vice President of Tacosa North America. For those of you who are not familiar with the company, big operation worldwide. Uh, they're uh, producers of rear-view systems for automotive manufacturers such as Nissan, Ford, Volkswagen, Fiat, Chrysler, and General Motors. They're going to be increasing their production capacity in Tennessee, and uh, we are grateful that Fred has come on the show to share what's happening uh, with both the company and this expansion. Fred, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, good morning, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you're making quite an investment in Tennessee. What's happening in Tennessee? Well, I think, you know, to, to really understand, um, I think it's important to know a little bit about the history of, of FACOSA and particularly FACOSA in, in North America. Uh, FACOSA is a large Tier 1 company, but, but we started in 1949 uh, in Spain as uh, literally in a garage and have, uh, have grown constantly for, for all these decades. And we started operations in in the United States, in North America, actually, in, in about 1994. And at the time, we had a, a sales office in Detroit, and all of our manufacturing in North America was done in a plant that we had in Mexico. 
up until about 2008, all of the, again the manufacturing being in Mexico uh, only for North America, we had um, we had a disadvantage in 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 the North American market in that we were were not really close logistically to a lot of uh, to a lot of our customers and some of our suppliers. So in in 2008, we made our first acquisition in the United States, uh, a mere company that was located in in Crossville, Tennessee, and we've been operating that plant, still operated today, and and that was our introduction into Tennessee, and and you know the Tennessee area has become more important as that whole mid south corridor for automotive has grown, a number of our customers in that in that area. In 2010, we had another acquisition in the United States, and that was um, a company in Kentucky. And then again, the next following year, in 2011, uh, we acquired a company in Indiana. So we had we went from in a period of about three years, we went from all of our manufacturing being in Mexico in North America to having about 60 to 70 percent of our manufacturing for North America located in the United States. The downside of that for us was that we had, you know, we had everybody else's processes. Uh, we had older manufacturing assets, so it was clear for us in the United States that we needed to we needed to seriously upgrade our presence here. And uh, we determined that we were going to we were going to be best served. Our customers were best served. Focosa was best served by building a facility in um, in what turned out to be Cookville, Tennessee, which is about about 30 minutes from our current facility in Crossville. Oh, okay. So you're 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 a perfect example of a reshoring corporation for for the United States. Well, yeah, you know, and, and and I think one of the interesting things is that um, because we made the the determination that you know we we needed to address a couple of things. You know, in automotive quality, quality is a given. If you're not producing quality parts, uh, you're just not going to play in the game very long. So it was important to us. It was important to us to to as we built this plant, to make sure that we had state-of-the-art manufacturing equipment. Uh, you know, our processes are for, for outside rearview mirrors are basically uh, injection molding. Uh, we paint most most mirrors are body color these days, so we have to match the body color of the uh, of the OEM and assembly. So we've we've invested in assets that um, that that, real, that are state-of-the-art. All, all of the newest technologies in terms of painting injection. And, uh, and assembly to assure good quality. The um, the other thing is is that we is that we needed to be competitive. Uh, to address the competitive issue, we decided to build when we built this plant in Cookville that it was going to be as vertically integrated as we could possibly make it. And 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 this will be the the most vertically integrated outside rear manufacturing plant in the world. Uh, not just Focosa, but in the world, because we're going to integrate as well as the processes we just talked about. We are also going to um, do aluminum die casting in the facility. A lot of the mirrors uh, don't have plastic. Some have plastic frames. Some have um, uh, aluminum die cast frames. The the determinant is typically you know performance. So they, they, what you don't want is you want a very stable outside rearview mirror. You don't want a mirror that you uh, that is that is vibrating and you can't uh, you can't really make out the objects in the in the back very clearly. So a lot of the, a lot of this product has uh, aluminum die casting. That's going to be integrated. A lot of outside rearview mirrors today have lighting components, either ground illumination lighting or or turn signals. These are products that Focosa in North America 
either bought from, in terms of lighting, we would sometimes buy from our facility in China, which makes these products. Um, or in, in the case of aluminum die casting, those were all purchased components that came from either Mexico or, or uh, several locations in Asia. So, so by repatriating this work in, in Cookville, in essence, what we're doing is, is, is really repatriating some, some offshore jobs back into Tennessee. And that's, uh, you know, that, I take some personal pride in that, and I know it's been, uh, it's been, been of great interest to, uh, to the communities uh, where we're locating. Well, they, I'm sure that they like the idea of having five or 600 new jobs in their area. Uh, who's going to train all these new people, uh, Fred? But you, actually, the, the you know the workforce availability. I mean, it, you know, it, it the the market right now in automotive uh, for skilled, uh, experienced people is very very difficult. And that was one of the one of the reasons that led us to Cookville because in, in Cookville they have um, uh, in in the high schools in in Cookville they have an advanced manufacturing program. Uh, where they're taking where they're taking the the high school juniors and seniors, um, they actually have a curriculum that's uh, that's very that's very um, uh, bent towards towards manufacturing. Uh, they have um, they, they have programs where where these students will actually work for uh, work for some of the local companies as part of the educational process. So so there there was there was this element that we found very attractive as well. Cookville is the home of Tennessee Tech University, Tennessee Technical University, which is um, a really uh, a advanced, uh, very, uh, very modern uh, educational institution that has uh, that that has an outreach program where they they solicit uh, they solicit programs from local manufacturers, uh, projects from local manufacturers. And work with local manufacturers, so it, it was. It really helped us address some of our, our employment needs issues. Fred, is uh, Picosa being uh, global in scope, experiencing this skills gap challenge in places other than the United States? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, and and you know, it, it really it depends. On the on the sort of the microeconomics of the regions, you know, in in Europe there's been a, there's been a sustained downturn in Europe, so there hasn't been um, there hasn't been a lot of turnover in Europe, and there is uh, there is an availability of talent. Uh, we we fight uh, pretty much a never-ending battle in in our China operation. Uh, there's a there's a lot of mobility in the, in the Chinese workforce and a lot of opportunity. So pe two, you know two things happen: pe people are willing to move. And they're willing to move for reasons like um, less less commuting time that they they look for they look for employment closer to where they live, and they're they're very very quick to move for for salary considerations as well. So that that's proved to be a difficult market. Mm, interesting. Now, when you were making this change to uh, Tennessee, you you mentioned working with uh, several levels of government. How did that work out for you guys? Well, you know, it was a it was a two year process. Once we had once we had narrowed down, and we had, we had opportunities to to expand in Kentucky, um, and that that was attractive from from cert, for certain for, for certain reasons. Um, but really, over a two year process, we we worked very. We had we had selected the uh, the, the Middle Tennessee, the Cumberland County, because, uh, excuse me, Putnam County area. 
and we worked uh, we worked very closely with uh, with both the city of Cookville and uh, and Putnam County and and the state. And there was, um, you know, I, I had a host of issues that that I wanted to that that I wanted to see um, where we could. To us, it was not only important to have the participation of the levels of government, but we wanted to we wanted to put ourselves in a position where where Facosa would be branded in, in its new location, and Facosa would be the 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 choice employer, the the employer of choice, where people would would want to work. Um, and and we really thought the the not only the the incentives that we that we were able to uh, negotiate with the level three levels of government, but also the uh, the way we were welcomed into the community, and we really we really gave us the opportunity to brand ourselves. So that that was very important for us. So let me ask you a question, Fred. Is uh, Facosa the name some kind of a fancy word coming out of Tennessee? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, Facosa doesn't stand for anything. It's not unlike most things in, in automotive. It's not an acronym. <laughs> it was uh, it was a name that was uh, it was a name that was by the by the founders created by the founders back in 1949, and uh, it stuck to today. And it has no meaning. That's correct. <laughs> That's great. So what's, what's the actual investment in terms of dollars uh, in this new facility, Fred? Uh, it, it's it's a fifty million dollar investment. And so is we that have from bare ground up. Yeah, the, the, you know we were the the city of Cookville and and of course county and state as well. They they were very progressive uh, a number of years ago. They they decided that they were going to build an industrial park. And it was, uh, you know, it was sort of the philosophy of if you build it, they will come. Um, mm-hmm. it was, well, they didn't come right away because they, they they started this in just after the recession of 2008, 2009, and no one came for a while. So we're actually going to be the first tenant in this, but it's it's a beautiful industrial park. Um, it's you know complete with 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 new roads. Um, the thing is landscaped uh, very nicely, so. Um, we had this. We were able to to have this very prominent location. We have uh, we have frontage on on forty on forty on Interstate forty. Um, so it, it's um it's it's a it was a real opportunity for the for the city of city of Cookville to to both justify their investment and and for us to build this um, what 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 we consider our real our show place of manufacturing. Uh, Fred, in our pre-show conversation that you and I had, uh, you talked about uh, having 500 new jobs, and uh, you have you had what about 400 people that actually moved with you. Uh, again, how are you going to train these people? I think I started off uh, with that, but it wasn't clear to me how that you're going to be doing that. Um, how are you going to be training so many people? Well, we have. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a. First of all, we have about we have about 400 current Tennessee employees in Crossville. About 320 of those are going mm-hmm. to are going to move to um, to to the Cookville facility. So okay. there there is going to be phased in over a period of of three years. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're going in Tennessee. Our employment level is going 
from from 400 something to 900 something. It'll be almost a thousand employees, but that mm-hmm. that's not gonna that's not gonna happen all at one time. Um, right. It'll be phased in over a period of of three years, and because we are bringing so many experienced employees with us, uh, you know, one one of our concerns was really how many people are going are are we going to lose a a significant majority of the people because of the because of the 20 to 30 minute drive and we you know we we did some surveys we talked to people but we didn't really really feel like we understood how many would actually leave the fact that we retained 70 to 80 percent was uh, was really a positive we, we felt very good about that because you know the for, for the for the manufacturing processes themselves most of that is is in-house training so having having that well of the, having that group of experienced people is, is 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 extremely important, and then again the the um, the city is willing to work with us in terms of curriculum in in their high school programs, as well as mm-hmm. Tennessee Tech. What because of the because of the state of the art um, the advanced technology manufacturing equipment we have, we're really talking about an awful lot of skilled jobs as well. And so, so Tennessee Tech being there is uh, was a great advantage to us because there's <clears throat> there will be a, a significant there will be people who are 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 well prepared coming into the workforce for us. You know, and I, I might add too, Lou, the, 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 we um, about uh, three months ago we had uh, you know we had a hundred and some job openings that needed to be filled right now, and we were really concerned about how fast we would be able to fill those. I can tell you today that we that we actually don't have a job opening today. There'll be more. There's more, a lot more on the horizon. But you know, we have been able to fill our employment needs to date. That's terrific. Uh, Tim and I talk uh, quite a bit about uh, all the issues that we've been talking with you about, and uh, how the federal government is uh, not really prepared, nor do they, I think, have a strong interest in getting in, really getting involved in the uh, expansion of manufacturing in this country. And it seems to be that it's the uh, local uh, governments, the, the state, the uh, universities, uh, organizations like here in New Jersey, uh, the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and in your case, the Tennessee Technical University, and they're opening up all over the country. And as you pointed out, the high schools are now getting involved in uh, creating uh, advanced manufacturing uh, uh, programs. And I, I think it's really terrific because I think it's taken a while for people to realize that if we're going to wait for the federal government to, to step in and really uh, help out in this major uh, component of our economy, that forget about it. You, you got to do it local. And, and I think your your situation, your story is really a, a, sh- a showcase for what could be done. And it's terrific. I commend you. Well, I, I think I think it's an interesting point. I mean, I'm. You know, I'm I, I'm not going to do a critique on the U.S. government, but it, but it's true. I mean, the, when I talk about three levels of government, and um, you know, in 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 my two years of discussion to to finalize the negotiations and 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 actually get to a groundbreaking, um, I don't think the the federal government ever came into the into the discussion once whatsoever, um, and and basically from the three levels of government, city, county, and state, uh, I was. Uh, I was laughing the other day when I was talking to I was talking to a couple of state employees and 
And um, they, I had said something about uh, were they going to be available later that day, and they said no, and it struck me, and that was probably the first time they'd ever said no to me. You know, it was always <laughs> if, 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 if I had a need to fill, you know, their, their response was always, well, you know, like I can't just fill it, but let me, let me see what we can do. You know, is there, is there a workaround for your problem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I went to uh, I went to a city council meeting at one point because uh, you know I frankly had underestimated some of the ground preparation costs and I wanted to talk to them about uh, some ideas to sort of offset some of that cost and I started the meeting by saying I have a problem and they they didn't even listen to the problem they said to me you know whoa whoa wait a minute if you have a problem we have a problem so I mean that was the, the, the just the, the participation was was just amazing so you partnered. I I would call it partner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. And that's and that's what we Tim and I have been talking about for quite a while with the uh, local um, uh, local government, local educators, and so on. That's terrific. Fred, yeah. one of the things that uh, Lou and I also hear a lot about is the Internet of Things and the industrial Internet of Things. And since this is going to be a vertically integrated company, how much of that technology? is going to be implanted in this operation. In, 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 I'm sorry, Tim, in what sense? In terms of the machine-to-machine communication. I know uh, so much of what's happening in manufacturing is now machine-to-machine. Yeah, you, well, you know, it's, for instance, I, I, you know, I, it, it, it's interesting because when you were asking the question, I'm thinking, you know, we, we, we do an awful lot with, you know, we, we've talked about Focosa's um, uh, rear-view mirror systems, and that's primarily what, what Cookville is going to do. But, you know, Focosa is, is a lot more than, than rear-view mirrors. We do a lot of um, advanced driver awareness systems. Uh, we do e-mobility, um, camera monitoring systems. We, do, we also do um, communications. Uh, modules for for automotive. So so we do we produce a module and it's it's used exclusively by two major OEMs uh, used by one currently and soon to be in another. Where it's the module allows the vehicle to talk to some infrastructure and the um, and as well it has the capability of talking vehicle to vehicle, which of course is going to be important in autonomous driving. In the it, and the reason the reason I mention that is is because when when you ask the question, I'm thinking you know that that's an interesting point because um, you know I think even for all the technology that we have, manufacturing technology that we have in this new plant, there's probably some opportunities for us to for for us to 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 better that idea of of machine to machine communications because. We're sort of segmented with the way we manufacture. You know, we have an injection mold area, um, and all of those things have have controls and communications and interfaces. But basically, they're they're within that department. And the same thing in 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 the paint department. Um, all of the all of the robots and the loading and unloading is all synchronized. Um, there's all there, there is a, a a lot of e communication, but again, it's within that. That that paint segment. So that's uh, so I think you, you know m- m- maybe we do better than our in our product. We do that better in our product than we do in our process. Yeah, it's a process, and I'm fascinated by the process in both machine to machine and something that they're calling big data. You know, you've got all these machines with all these 
pieces of intelligence built in, communicating with one another, computing, communicating back to a central server. And what do you do with all this information? It's, it's tough to just manage it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. You, the um, I, I, when the when the big quality push came in automotive some some fifteen or twenty years ago, I mean, I can remember customers coming in and saying, "Look, here's the twenty things you have to manage." And they said they would say to me, "What what, what do you what do you manage now?" And I said, uh, "Well, I manage uh, I manage first time through, and uh, and process efficiency." And they said, "Oh, those are good. What else do you what else do you manage?" I said, "Nothing." And they said, "Well, <laughs> that that's inadequate." I said, "Well, I don't know. I always found if those two things were good, the plant was good." You know. <laughs> so, so, the, the, so to your point, uh, there, there's lots of data available, but you you know you've got to be able to do something uh, worthwhile with it. Now you're also uh, uh, partly owned by uh, Panasonic, is that right? That's correct. That was uh, that happened in last year. Um, Panasonic took a 49% excuse me 49% position in in Ficosa, and this was. Um, this this was important. I mean, we we recognized that. You know, I talked about our humble beginnings in 1949, and and today we've grown our our global sales are are 1.2 billion U.S. dollars globally. We do about uh, 350 million dollars in the United States. So so, you know, not a not not a huge tier one supplier. Um, so it was important for us to find an, an operating partner um, a. a Partner that would we weren't we weren't looking for an investor we were looking for someone who would participate the business, and Panasonic was perfect as be a perfect partner for us because our, our our products which were which were sometimes mechanical and electromechanical are really turning into into much more uh, pure electronic modules. So uh, Panasonic obviously brought a, a lot of uh, a lot of ability and a lot of opportunity for us. We're able to. You know, currently we're working on on being able to integrate. You know, we we talked. We, we again we focused a lot on rearview mirrors, but but Focosa also does uh, shifters, um, washer systems for cameras, a number of other items. We're we're working with Panasonic now, where they produce infotainment centers that have console components that we can integrate. They shift by wire module in, so it's really expanded our opportunity. And and you know, we're just starting to touch on that as the is the um, is the Panasonic relationship only started last year, but but we have we have um, um, multiple working groups, and and this will probably this will no doubt be important for Cookville in the future years, as Cookville will become um, surely a man uh, surely a system integrator for these products, if not a manufacturer of them. Yeah, Panasonic. Uh, I am on the consumer end of their business in terms of buying some of the audio equipment they produce. And, and have been in love with it for years. So I was yeah. intrigued that you guys partnered with Panasonic because they really are an industry leader in electronics. Bright group of folks. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Uh, Fred, as a manufacturer looking forward across the United States for the next five years or so, concerns about the economy? Well, you know, the... We're at 17 and a half million vehicles a year for automotive. Um, how long can that last? Well, the, you know, the, the data suggests that that it can last because uh, the replacement rate of vehicles um, should st- remain strong for the next four years. Uh, 
General Motors came out with their with their predictions uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, they see us finishing at 17.5 million this year, maybe a little bit softer next year. But um, you know, for our segment, for our segment of the business, uh, pe- people are employed, um, credit is available. Uh, there seems to be a pent-up demand because of the period of years where people didn't replace vehicles as, as, as quickly as they might. So, you know, we, we see we see a, um, a, a con- we have conservative growth figures, but we, mm-hmm. we certainly don't see any major fallback. That's good. Uh, I, I have a question. Issue. I'm sorry, Lou, go ahead. Uh, yeah, in, in addressing the uh, replacement of vehicles, being that you know quality is such a big issue, and uh, particularly U.S. and and certainly the foreign automotive uh, manufacturers, they're, they're building an incredible amount of uh, quality in their products, which also tends to have their product uh, automobiles lasting longer. So, uh, is that a factor in perhaps uh, auto sales? getting softer because people aren't replacing cars as often as they did in the 1950s well yeah yeah i, I don't think the i don't think the the market is so much driven by the fact that you've worn a car out anymore you know i think i think a lot of the a lot of the buying decisions are made because people want the newest technologies um if you look at i think the the the, the manufacturer the oem manufacturers that uh, that really understand the market are the ones that have managed to migrate uh, high technology items into medium and lower price vehicles. Um, we, we've seen a number of our customers do that, where systems that would only be available on the uh, on the high trim levels are suddenly finding their way into uh, uh, more moderately priced vehicles. Uh, styling, I still think, drives an awful lot of the sales. So, um, you know, I, I, that. That whole—I don't think that in the you know in the in, in the fifties and sixties you know the fact that a that a car had just plain been been used to its life to its life um, expectancy, I, I don't think right. that plays so much a role in in, in the purchasing decision anymore. Well, I I agree, I agree, uh, and and it's a good thing. For the kind of the, uh, things that you make, uh, the high technology vision, uh, particularly rear view, does that include the interior rear view mirror? And what's going into that? Because I see some great new tech going into what used to be a simple rear view mirror. No, that's, you know, it was a, it, it started in rear view mirrors. It started off, um, it was a hollow package space. You know, when 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 the OEM manufacturers were running out of places inside the vehicle to put things. Well, you couldn't put a cup holder in it, but you you certainly could put you could put antenna components, or you could put a garage door opener. You know, so it was so so it was in that transition that from a from a hollow plastic case with a simple reflective surface that suddenly started to house all these other components, uh, everything from OnStar to garage door openers. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because we have we have a really exciting new product. In that um, we offer an, an inside rear view mirror that can be either a regular mirror, a reflective surface, it can be a complete camera display, or it can be uh, 50/50. Uh, 
So it can be half uh, half reflective, and and or it can be a reflective surface, and then it has a it has a, a heads up insert of the uh, of the camera of the camera display. So it's a, and per, you know personally, I think when you when you first start to when you first start to use it, it takes a little it takes a little while for a driver to become accustomed to to the the actual clarity of the of the camera display. But 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 once drivers get used to it. Uh, the, they don't use the uh, they don't use the reflective that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this the rear view camera uh, that's looking behind the car that you're looking at on the rear view mirror is that right? Yeah. Well, you know the the cameras are there's a whole in the in the advanced driver awareness segment that we do. Um, we use a series of of at least four cameras. So we have. Uh, we have either a bird's eye view, um, so we have an image that can be that can replicate looking straight down at the vehicle, or we have the we have the surround view, where there's four cameras, uh, one in each outside rear view mirror, one in the front, one in the back of the vehicle. So you have that uh, you have the the uh, uh, total around the vehicle view, which you know, and then with that you can you can drive a number of things. Um, you know, some manufacturers are have automatic braking functions uh some are just triggering warnings um but there's a host of there's a host of driver input that you can get off of those four cameras yeah you know, I, I wanted to mention too but what you know sometimes sometimes high tech drives low tech um it was interesting because it, one of the important things in 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 the camera systems is they've got to be clean enough that you can see out of them so uh the we and we have produced windshield washer systems for years, and frankly, it's never been a, a huge division for us. And and we've never—I don't think—I think it would be fair to say that we never really put a lot of our resources into developing that market. But one, all the use of cameras on vehicles today has driven a real interest on on the ability to clean those 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 cameras. So you can because the camera is—you know—if the camera's covered with mud or snow and ice, it's not going to—it's not going to be able to do what it's intended to do. Right. So, are you envisioning a, a miniature windshield wiper for the camera? Well, we, we we actually we have a system in the market now, and and what it is is it's a it's a really small nozzle. It's almost impossible to see. Um, it hits it once with water and twice with a burst of air, and it does an amazing job. It'll take it'll take dried mud off of the camera lens. <laughs> That's incredible. I want one. Yeah, it's always fun to hear about this uh, this new kind of technology that's coming out. We've had a number of uh, people on the show. One that does uh, uh, absolute microscopic nano uh, measured holes, and that's coming in the dashboard, so that mm-hmm. if you look at the dashboard, you see nothing unless it lights up and it can provide you messages. You wouldn't even know the holes are there. So here's another case where. Uh, Tech is doing some really fascinating things. Anything as you look down the road, Fred, that you think technology is going to do for safety in the near future? Well, yeah, I think you know the you, you hear estimates about um, about self-driving uh, self-driving vehicles, the autonomous vehicles. You, you hear estimates about about when these when these are going to hit the road. But I mean, the, the, there's there, there's a progression of things that are happening leading up to that, and you know, frankly, with with the new players in automotive, the likes of Google's and and what have you, I, 
the the, the timing that we understood as automotive suppliers uh, driven by OEMs uh, that I think we can take all of those time all of those time frames that we used to understand as ordinary or as standard I think we can take those and throw them out it's all moving so quickly right now you know one of the things we see in in leading to to this autonomous driving that's going to affect our product in outside rearview mirrors and we talked about all the products that Focosa produces outside rearview mirrors are still 70% of the sales of Focosa so it's a it is the most important single product that we produce and we we see and I'm, I, I the the estimates early early estimates were by by 2035 that outside rearview mirrors would disappear and be replaced by cameras well I I don't think it's going to take that long I think that's one of the progressions um, in the in the electronics uh, growth in the vehicle that's going to affect our product directly, and I think I think it's going to come pretty quickly. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't uh, pondered a vehicle without outside rearview mirrors. There there actually are some on the road in Europe where you know they aren't they aren't hindered by those uh, by those cumbersome FVMS FMVSS standards. So there are a few on the road currently, and we, we, we do do some systems. But, you know, it's it's interesting because um, you're, you're trained to look when you want to see what's, what's if you're going to pass, if you're going to change lanes. You know, you're, you're, you're trained to look at where that outside rearview mirror is. So right. the, the, the debate has been if you have a camera, does the display go on that, uh, does it go on the, on the A-pillar where you would look, be looking in that direction to see the outside rearview mirror? Or would you put it, or would you put that display back in the center of the of the driver console? So, I mean, there's there's some there's some interesting things to come to come to terms with, but but I think certainly within you know within 10 or 15 years, you're going to see a lot of migrations to camera and away from mirrors. Wow, wow, that would be fascinating to watch. Well, Fred, we certainly appreciate having you on Manufacturing Talk Radio and all of the insights that you've provided us. Uh, congratulations on your new facility there in uh, in Cookville. You've done some work, and you're bringing in some uh, terrific job opportunities for people. Well, Tim, Lou, thank, thanks very much for the opportunity. It was a, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. We have been speaking with uh, Frederick Carter, Vice President of FACOSA, which is a global company devoted to the creation of high-technology vision, safety, efficiency, and connectivity solutions for the industry with a desire to contribute to society through their commitment to technological innovation, human values, and energy efficiency. So it's always a pleasure to have an actual manufacturer on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We sometimes talk about the economy and new developments and trends, but uh, Talking to somebody who's actually producing product is always exciting to hear what they're doing and certainly finding out that uh, the rearview mirror may disappear is uh, a fascinating development. Lou, um, anything about next week's show, or can we just ask people to stay tuned? I know we've got some exciting shows coming up, but uh, things are at the moment. Well, we're going to do a um, uh, see what comes up next week. And... uh, Make sure that you tune in to mfgtalkradio.com, and uh, we're putting together the next week's show, and maybe we'll have a couple of surprises for you. So thanks for listening to us, and Tim? 
Thanks, everyone. We appreciate you being listeners of uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio, and you can find us at mfgtalkradio.com. We're also on iTunes if you want to download it for your listening convenience. Uh, you can also find us uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Please follow us there. We'd love to have you following us. And thanks for listening today to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>